Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Hi, Geneva. Tatum. I'm very excited for this episode today. Um, Me too. We're trying something a little different today. Yeah, this is kind of an idea that Geneva and I had when we first started the podcast of like, it would be cool at some point to record episodes for movies that are coming out right now. And so we figured now would be a good time to do that because it is award season and the Oscars are incoming. The, uh, beloved but also very much hated (laughs) (laughs) we have a complex relationship with the Oscars (laughs) very complex um but we're still gonna engage with it because why not um (laughs) I I mean I hope this movie receives nominations and if not we can be the ones to say we talked about it and we did our best to put it in the consciousness (laughs) (laughs) right um yeah so before we dive into um the 2023 adaptation of the color purple why don't we just say real quick things that we've been watching recently yeah sure thing um so we are recording this during christmas week so i'm looking through my recent watches and almost all of them are christmas Christmas movies Um, so for in terms of rewatches, um, I rewatched Christmas in Connecticut from 1945, which is a perennial favorite of mine. If anyone has not seen it, it's a really charming romantic comedy starring Barbara Stanwyck about this woman who's like a she's basically like a Martha Stewart type. Um, she writes this homemaker sort of column in a magazine about how she cooks and she lives on a farm with her husband and her baby. But it turns out that actually she's Barbara Stanwyck, a single woman who lives in an apartment in New York and has no idea how to cook or take care of a baby (laughs) or do any of these things. And her publisher kind of strong arms her into hosting this um, like soldier who's like he had a really tough time during the war so hosting him at her farm for Christmas and she's like well I don't have a farm so what am I going to do <laughs> and so she kind of scams her way into getting a getting borrowing a farm what? and baby and <laughs> and it's just really charming and delightful and everything about Barbara Stanwyck's lifestyle and style in this movie is my all my mood board aspirations so i if anyone has not seen it i highly recommend this movie it's very cute um let's see i also rewatched die hard which Mm -hmm. i had not seen many years great action movie um i won't comment on the is it a christmas movie but it definitely takes place during (laughs) christmas that's very explicit so um let's see in terms of new watches i watched holiday inn which is the sort of um movie that white christmas is sort of a quasi remake of even though the plots are actually very different i really did not like holiday inn have you, Tatum, mm. have you seen holiday inn no okay so i mean problem number one 
you know, the biggest problem about it, there is an extended musical number, which the leads perform in blackface, which is a big problem. Oh, gosh. Okay. I fast forwarded <laughs> over it completely, full disclosure, because I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to deal with this right now <laughs> while I'm in the holiday spirit. But from what I could tell, it, it looked it looked quite uh, problematic. But apart from all of that, it's just in my opinion, inferior to White Christmas in any way. The two leads Hmm. who are Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire, both characters are pretty unlikable. Fred Astaire is this kind of overbearing, like self-absorbed guy who keeps stealing Bing Crosby's girls away from him. Bing Crosby is this total like um, sort of he won't stand up for himself. He just kind of uses underhanded means to try and get back at Fred Astaire. They don't really have any friendship, which is strange for a movie that's kind of billed about, oh, look at these two guys be buddies. The female lead uh, I thought was really boring. Um, (laughs) Brought nothing to the table. Uh, Apologies to her. But yeah, I just I was not crazy about this movie. I think White Christmas is far better. So so yeah, that's all, Dan. Why why are you comparing this movie to White Christmas? Is it like are they somehow related? White Christmas is sort of a. I mean, they're always linked in my mind, which I'm not sure is completely fair. But white the song White Christmas premiered in the film Holiday Inn, and then oh. they later took that song and f- turned it into the movie White Christmas. It's oh. filmed the inn that they use as the Holiday Inn. In Holiday Inn is the same inn that's used in White Christmas. Bing Crosby is obviously the same an actor in both of them. So there, it is very much sort of, we're kind of remaking Holiday Inn, but we're making it more specifically about Christmas and we're okay. changing the plot quite a bit. Okay, um, But there are sort of links between the two. I think they're often associated with each other. Um, yeah, so... Apologies to anyone who disagrees. Your <laughs> mileage may vary, but I, even apart from the whole problematic <laughs> uh, musical number, I just was not very charmed by it, which was un- disappointing. Um, and then the last Christmas movie that I saw, which was terrible, but I enjoyed so much, was hmm. uh, the Netflix movie Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Which oh, is... yeah. Did you see it? No. Okay. <laughs> but I hear Dolly Parton and my reaction is yes. automatically, oh, Dolly Parton. <laughs> it really feels like a like a sort of thrown together stage show that they just set up cameras for. Like it's everything is very visibly sets. It's all kind of in one location. It's very much a musical. Everyone's kind of leaping and dancing around. It's very cheesy. Um, the plot, you you know exactly what's going to happen before it happens. <laughs> And some of the acting is very questionable, but Dolly Parton's <laughs> in it, and she wrote the songs for it. The songs are pretty oh, did catchy. did she really? I think so. Yeah. Pretty cool. sure. Christine Bransky is the lead. She's always great. So Does Dolly Parton sing in it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. She plays gotcha. this sort of like um, angel figure who is, you know, she's sort of the Clarence to Christine Bransky. Well, no, It's a Wonderful Life is not a great um, comparison. She's like... The three, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future all rolled into one to oh, Christine Baranski's okay. Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a great time. <laughs> I had a great fun. time with them. It is extremely cheesy, <laughs> but it's really fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you so, watched something fun. That's, that's yeah. great. Um, yeah. So what about you? What have you got? What have you watched recently? So again, since we're recording this around Christmas time, uh, you know, there's a lot of sitting around 
you know, not really much going on aside from sitting around. <laughs> so, so I've seen, um, quite a few things. I actually, this year, um, I actually spent Christmas this year at the movie theater. So I saw three movies in a row. Um, one of which is poor things by Yorgos Lanthimos or Yorgos Lanthimos's most recent film. The second one is the iron claw directed by Sean Durkin. And, you know, then I saw the color purple, but in addition to those, I also watched Saltburn for the first time, and I watched White Christmas, my favorite Christmas movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to go through them briefly, White Christmas is just, I mean... It's so good. Yeah, it's... Anyone who tells me it's not a good movie, I need to demand, give me specific reasons why, because there's there's barely anything to dislike here. Um, so yeah, I watched White Christmas. I watched it with my mom. It was, it was just a nice time to sit with my mom and watch it because I remember her showing it to us for the first time when we were little and it's just a fun time. There's a lot of great humor in it. And as I get older, I appreciate it more and more because when I was younger, I was just like, oh, Christmas and fun dances. And now that I'm older, I'm able to appreciate the acting performances, the humor, the, the, um, the heartfelt storyline of the general and how they really want to support him because he's this guy who, you know, used to be, he used to have a lot of purpose in his life. And now that he's no longer in the military, he's kind of lost and not appreciated by society. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of layers to this movie that make it very, very good. So yeah, I, I rewatched by Christmas. Um, I, there are not enough words to, express my love for poor things directed by Yorgos Lanthimos he he's made several movies and I feel like with each movie that he makes they get a little bit more accessible to people um all of his movies are very weird (laughs) they're just very weird but I feel like poor things is just another step in the direction of being super wacky but also having a really great theme that it's that it's trying to communicate and it communicates it in an extremely unique creative way um would you say just to clarify would you say poor things is more accessible than the favorite i don't know probably not but i also haven't seen the favorite since it came out and that was years ago so i can't speak specifically to that at this moment but i feel like maybe not it's either but i'm assuming more so than the lobster or <laughs> the sacred deer <laughs> yes um if it is less less accessible than the favorite it's not less by that much okay gotcha. um but yeah poor things is absolutely phenomenal it i mean it has some of the best costumes i've seen in the 21st century i mean the costumes are absolutely incredible um, so well designed and so creative and so unique. I've never seen costumes like this before. Um, don't even get me started on Emma Stone's performance. Like it, if you are an Emma Stone fan, I mean, you're like you're going to be absolutely blown away. Um, Mark Ruffalo is also having such a fun time here. He is so incredibly hilarious in this movie. I've never seen him play a role like this and he pulls it off so, so well. Um, Willem Dafoe, as always, fantastic. Rami Youssef, he's one of my favorites. He 
stars in and directs one of my favorite TV shows I've ever seen. And I also got to meet him working on The Bear. He's a really great guy. So I'm happy that he got such a big role in a movie like this. Um, So, yeah, I would highly recommend Poor Things. The cinematography is incredible. Um, And I feel like up until this movie, I was pretty confident that Barbie was going to win Best Production Design. Um, But Poor Things is going to give it a run for its money. I... They're, I mean, they're di- very different styles of production design, but either of them could take it. And I literally thought that Barbie, that nothing could compete with it this year. But poor things, man. Highly recommend this movie. It, it's quite, it's quite long, um, but it's very, very good. And this is the first Yorgos Lanthimos movie actually that I've seen where I finished it, and I was like, I immediately want to watch this again. Because a lot of his movies, I finished them, and I think that was interesting. Maybe I'll go back to it. Whereas this one, I just was like, I could watch this again right now. I loved it so much. Um, so yeah, it's a great film that has a very interesting and unique approach to feminist themes. Um, and so yeah, highly recommend. Don't watch it with your children. Don't watch it with your parents. Uh, don't don't watch it with any family members uh but it's very good and yeah so anyway uh iron claw i thought was very good um i also speaking of the bear i wanted to support jeremy uh jeremy allen white because i know him as well and i'm so happy that he's getting the roles that he's been fighting for for like over a decade um this movie was good i didn't really know anything about this wrestling family at all And so I was going into this movie knowing nothing about them. And as the movie went on, I was like, oh, this is this is a tragedy. (laughs) Like, this is really sad. Um, So from what I've heard, they toned down the tragedy for the movie. There is more to the story that they did not include. Yes. So it, it is very difficult to watch in the sense that I I struggle with movies where I see parents just being bad parents to their children and this is kind of the most extreme version of that that I've seen in a while um so it's it's good it's just a hard movie to get through um but it does end on a somewhat hopeful note and the performances here are really good Zac Efron does a really really great job um Jeremy is obviously great um honestly everyone is good in it so I would recommend if you are in an okay mood (laughs) watch the iron claw um and then lastly saltburn i'm not gonna go into it uh but i hated this movie i really hated saltburn it's my least favorite movie of the year um yeah that's 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 all i'm gonna say yeah because i feel like if i go into specifics i could possibly get into territory of insulting people and i don't want to do that um but yeah i i hated this movie and yeah, it's just not good. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> can I say one more since we're on the topic of new releases? Sure. Uh, so this afternoon, I went with my a couple of my brothers to see Wonka, mm. um, which just came out, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was very, very charming. It's by the guy who written and directed, well, co-written, I think, and directed by the Paul King who did the Paddington movies, which I adore. And it's very similar in tone to the Paddington movie is a little bit more whimsical and fantastical in its setting, but similar 
um, kind of humor and sensibility and um, yeah, just sense of sort of childlike wonder, but also layering on some more adult themes, but in a way that's like, very accessible for children. Um, I thought it was really good, really fun, um, really delightful. I do think Timothy Chalamet, um, I think he does, he is very sincerely trying his best. I don't think whimsy really comes naturally to him. I felt like I could kind of feel the strain in his performance to try and be kind of, you know, that sort of childlike, impish, you know, Willy Wonka character. He felt very miscast to me. I mean, I haven't seen it, but even just from the trailers, I was like, this is a strange, strange casting. Yeah, yeah. I will say, I think he really sincerely does everything he can with what he has with that role. And so I I respect that. And I think he's okay. I don't think, I think maybe you could have cast someone who could have done that role a little bit better, but I think he gives it everything he's got. You know, he's very committed to it, which I think helps a lot. there's a lot of secondary characters who I think really do shine and fit much more naturally into their roles. Um, they do a great job. My, you know, one of my favorite actresses, Olivia Coleman, is in it, giving a great performance as a kind of villainous character. Um, so yeah, I I really enjoyed Wonka. It's a great, um, you know, it's a great movie for the f- the whole family. You know, as they they say, like kids can watch it, but it won't be boring for adults. I don't think as long as you're, you know in the mood for something a bit more um, fun and whimsical. You learn a lot about the ins and outs of chocolate cartels, which mm. are really fun. Um, yeah, so that was that was Wonka. Do you think I would like it? Have you seen the Paddington movies? I don't feel like you, you know have my, not You yet, know right? my relationship with the Paddington movies? Oh, yes, of course I do. Sorry. Yeah. Um, i trying to think with that specifically. I mean, I think you... T- theoretically could but i'm trying to think if there's any moments in it where because you said that with the paddington movies what stressed you out was that sort of creation of chaos oh it's so chaotic <laughs> i will say early in the movie i don't know how you feel about this specifically but early in the movie the main character makes a choice that's sort of born out of naivete and it traps him into this really unfair situation that he has, then has to spend the rest of the movie digging himself out of and um i mean it was it was fine for me i don't know if that that's the sort of thing that might stress you out but okay yeah it's a very dickensian feel in in certain ways too i'll give it a chance i just don't think i'll pay to see it in a in a theater um what's your relationship to the original 1970s willy wonka or even the johnny depp uh, tim burton willy wonka like have you or charlie and the chocolate factory have you interacted with those at all or are you fans of them yeah, the original I'm not really a huge fan of. I think I think it's fine. Um but for me it feels more so like a horror movie. Uh <laughs> I just Yeah. This it, is definitely not a horror movie. Yeah. You can't imagine this Willy Wonka doing the things that the yeah. Gene Wilder Willy Wonka does. The original one kind of freaks me out, not going to lie. And it's not something where I like it enough to to watch it on my own. I watched it growing up because it was just on TV a lot, but it's it would never be something that I would seek out to watch. Um the the Tim Burton one, I I I don't know because I watched it when I was a kid, and when I was a kid I loved it, but I feel like if I were to watch it as an adult, I would potentially hate it. I don't know. I haven't seen it in probably 15 years. <laughs> um but I did like it when I was a kid, but mm. I have no idea what my relationship would be with it now. Gotcha. Um, 
So, okay. yeah, I don't. It could potentially be extremely offensive. I remember there being particular cultural aspects of it that maybe haven't aged well. But again, I just don't remember very well. Very possible. I blocked out as much of that movie as I could. <laughs> I hated that movie so much. <laughs> yeah, I liked it as a kid. Um, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the color. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> um, so just just up front to say to everybody, this is just going to be a very casual conversation. Um, this is just going to be Tatum and Geneva as friends talking about a movie that we just watched. Because one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because Geneva and I, for years, we like this is just what we would do we would watch a movie particularly around award season we see a lot of movies and we would just call each other when we got out of a specific movie and talk about it um and so that's what we're doing today we have basically no prep and by that I mean we don't have any prep at all Um, (laughs) basically no prep meaning no prep (laughs) yeah so this episode could be like 40 minutes and I'm fine with that because we're just gonna have a good time and we're gonna talk about it um Mm -hmm. as far as I know Geneva you saw this yesterday correct yes that's okay and I saw it it like three days I saw it three days ago so you might have a better recollection than I do so Feel free to to carry me along where it's needed, but sure, yeah. Well, you also. We should probably start out by discussing our relationship with the color purple in any sure. sort of form. Yeah, and I can go first because I basically have no relationship <laughs> to the color purple. <laughs> I've right. never read the novel. I've never seen the Steven Spielberg film. I've never seen the the Broadway show on stage. The first time, my first time really interacting with this story um, is seeing this this new 2023 movie i mean i had some basic sort of general knowledge about the plot um but yeah i basically all all of seeing the whole story uh on screen here was the the first time that i'd really interacted with the story at all and i'd never listened to the soundtrack or anything like that beforehand so i really i was going in very very fresh but you you said you do have some relationship to the um at least the show and do you have any relationship to the novel or the steven spielberg movie as well yeah so uh i i don't i don't really have a huge relationship with it uh it's pretty minimal but that being said i i am aware of certain aspects of it so i have not seen the steven spielberg film um but from what i hear the color purple broadway show is a lot more similar to the novel than the steven spielberg movie is and this film, oh, interesting. The, the 2023 film is an adaptation of the Broadway show, not a remake of the Steven Spielberg film. So this, which therefore means that supposedly this movie is closer to the novel than um, the Steven Spielberg film. But that being said, yeah, I've never read the book. I've never seen the Steven Spielberg version. I also have not seen the show on stage. I would love to, um, but I am pretty familiar with the soundtrack. Um, I've listened to it quite a bit, particularly after uh, Cynthia Revo's magnificent performance at the Tonys, whenever that was. I can't remember what year it was. Um, but yeah, after I saw that, I was like, okay, I know I've listened to this soundtrack before, but it's time to revisit this. And it's one of my favorite Broadway musical soundtracks. It's just very, very good. Um and I would recommend if you haven't listened to it, especially after watching this movie, go back and listen to the soundtrack from the Broadway show because there's some songs there that are not included in this movie and the 
the Broadway show, it's just a very different style of singing because it's theater singing as opposed to um, whatever type of singing you would call this movie. Um, (laughs) I mean, they're both incredible, but it's just different, different styles of Mm. the same songs. Um, Yeah, like this, I mean, several of the cast members are pop stars. So I would imagine there's kind of a more pop-ish feeling to some of the singing as opposed to the Broadway um, soundtrack. Except for Danielle Brooks, who was mm. in um, the the Broadway. Musical. Oh, that's right. Was um, wasn't Fantasia Barino also in of the Broadway musical at some she, point? I'm gonna look it up right now because I'm curious. But yeah, keep going. Um, Fantasia, love her. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of my relationship with it. Going into this movie, I actually. When the movie first started, I realized how much I didn't know about the particular story because something that happens to me when I listen to Broadway musical soundtracks but haven't seen the show, I kind of can piece together certain things regarding what the story is because of the music, but there's a lot of holes in that and a lot of gaps, so I'm not really aware of the story overall. And so going into this movie, I knew that there were certain aspects of like, like, oppression and marriage and dating and things like that but I didn't know really really what the story was about and so when this movie started I was like okay I don't know if this is for me because I really struggled I was a little nervous about this like because I found out pretty soon before going to see it what some of the things that were going to be involved and yeah I was like I I hope Tatum's going to be able to handle this and then when you sounded came back out of it and sounded really positive i was like okay good but yeah yeah this is definitely a show a movie that's taking the most sort of i don't want to say positive spin on like presenting it in allowing the most joy to show through it a story that is extremely dark extremely Mm -hmm. depressing and full of horrible horrible things happening to our main characters yeah i Yes, this movie was very difficult for me for the first, however, what, 30 minutes, give or take, Um, because it took a long time for the movie to like add a little bit of positivity, because like you said, the whole movie pretty much is very dark, but I think it it had little bits of humor to balance it out. But like the first 30 minutes had there was no humor for me at all. And I was just like, oh, my God. I did. I was not aware of what I was getting yeah. into. <laughs> well, I really like that it starts out, and the first song is that really joyful number of all the women in the town. I think as they're going toward church to mm-hmm. to worship, and they're singing, and you the know, good it's Lord it's a very gospel style. So yeah, which is like it. It starts off on this really beautiful, positive note of all these people like coming together and and um, celebrating. And then it's introducing you to these two characters who are able to find joy, so much like joy in the love that they have for each other, these two sisters. And you slowly figure finding out what is happening to them. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is like the worst thing. But it, it's, I think this movie does a good job to me of sort of balancing, you know, life is hard and horrible and good things happen to bad people. But there is still... There you are mean, still ways to wait. You mean bad things happen to good people? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> did I did I reverse that? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Bad things happen to good people, but there are still ways to find joy in the living experience of life and in the the relationships and the love that you can have to for other people. Yeah. I 
Yes, I agree. Actually, Mysterious Ways is one of my favorite songs from the from the Broadway musical. It's very, very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like, like I said, this is going to be a super casual conversation. So there, there might not be any sort of like structure and approach to we're just going to talk however um but yeah I definitely was not expecting this whole dynamic of there's this father who has these two children these two daughters and then he marries one off to this random guy who very clearly is a terrible terrible human being but then we also learn that like she meaning Celia's character was abused by her father and then we learn that after she leaves then you know the other sister Nettie like she's being abused by the father and then she comes and it's just it's it's just really like a lot to begin with and um yeah it's it's just horrifying and and being established from the beginning of she gets to this house and he's like clean up and do all these things and and I feel like you just see her throughout the rest of the movie. There's just, I feel like I could, I felt her feeling of walking on eggshells. Like, like I, I felt it. I was like, oh my God, don't, don't take a step in the wrong direction or don't wash this thing the wrong way. Like, I just felt this huge sense of if she does one thing that it might not even necessarily be wrong, but if she does one thing that he sees as wrong, Mm -hmm. I mean, she's going to be hurt in a lot of, in lots of different ways. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, it, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. But that being said, I, I remember one of the main things that I wanted to talk to you about when I came out of this movie was, again, I was familiar with the soundtrack. So I knew that, that the music was very gospel heavy and there are a lot of things about, you know, God being involved and things like this. But I found it to be very interesting, this movie's or this story's approach to God and how, Mm. you know, because you have um, Taraji P. Henson's character, Suge, kind of coming in and being like, God is nature and God is this. And I believe that if God loves me for singing the blues, then one day my father can love me for singing the blues. But her father's a priest and he, you know, there's just so many themes here of what is God's place in this reality of people? And, you know, has God abandoned me because of these ways that I'm being treated? Or do I hold on to the hope that God's provides in the midst of this? I don't know. I just found it to be really interesting how I felt like the concept of God was so involved in this story throughout, but in lots of different ways. So I don't know if you connected with that at all, but that was a huge takeaway I had from this movie. Yeah, I, again, not knowing anything about the story going in, was surprised and and really intrigued by the way that spirituality and faith play into it. Because like you say, it is such a a huge theme. You know, we have the um, the sort of, uh, the faith of Celia is kind of this running theme throughout the film because she has this um, faith that's imparted to her in large part by her sister Nettie at the beginning of the film. And she kind of connects Nettie's love and concern and care for her with that of God. And as Nettie is taken away from her and the years pass with no word and her life continues to be 
difficult and she's abused and neglected and um, treated horribly by her husband and um, sees no way out of her situation. She keeps she really struggles to hang on to any sort of faith or any sort of conception of is there a God or is if there is a God, does he actually love me? And so the the um, sort of unorthodox but really intriguing faith of Suge is such a huge, such an instrumental um, part of her story. And um, Suge's like her philosophy. I remember the the line that stuck out to me because it's the title of the the you know novel slash show slash movie. And I'm assuming this is more or less taken from the novel, but I can't say for sure. But she talks about this idea that um, God wants to be, like, God wants to be loved and to be praised. And that's the same as all of us. You know, we all, Mm -hmm. because we are connected to God, we are images of God, we all want love and affection. And she talks about how if God, if one of us walks by something as glorious as the color purple, that's like a tragedy in God's eyes, Mm. which I thought is, is really intriguing and a really beautiful way to phrase it even though you know i'm not um like fully on the same page with shog about some of the things that she says i really thought that was a gorgeous way of thinking about the world about how we need to um kind of be active and intentional intentional about looking for the beauty in the world around us and in each other and um the act of loving someone else is a way of seeing god in them and a way of um, yeah, just like uh, appreciating the divine or, or worshiping the divine um, more generally. Yeah, I, I found it interesting that in this movie, I mean, I just came out of this and I was like, I just, I, I love women. <laughs> and I particularly... <laughs> that was also a big takeaway that I had. <laughs> yeah, like women, I just love them. And I also feel like black women in particular are some of the strongest people on the planet. Um, And I found it interesting that the concept of God seems to be very pertinent for the female characters, but we don't really see the men talking about God very much other than um, Suge's dad, who's a priest. But I, I don't know. I just found that to be very fascinating that the women seem to be more connected with this thing than the men are and I don't know if that's because the women are in situations where they have no other choice but to hope or if it's something where it's like God is existent for everybody but the men just like choose not to engage with it because they have the privilege that they don't have to Mm. they're kind of their own gods sort of thing um but I don't know I just found that to be interesting that for the women it was a lot more of a of like a relevant thing for them and the men didn't really seem to yeah. interact with it much at all. Do you happen to remember because toward the end of the story um Mr um her oh husband Albert he has this whole redemption arc mm-hmm. and I can't remember whether um it's made explicit that religion plays any role in that or he, if he attributes it in any part to God or if it's more um like, I, I just can't remember exactly the way he talks about it, the way others talk about it, whether that's any connection is made there. Well, I can't remember what Because he sort him. of has that moment where he's like curled up on the ground and he's kind of like crying out like, I'm going to do better. 
but I don't remember if that's phrased as some sort of a prayer. Or... When when is that moment when he does that? I can't remember what what leads him to that point where he actually starts to change. Um, it's like so. Seely has left. It's been a couple years. His um, his farm is doing really badly. They have to burn oh, the fields. He's kind yeah. of going out and getting drunk every night. And then he's stumbling home one night and it's storming and he falls mm-hmm. into the mud and is just like the things that Celie had said to him a couple years before about how badly he treated her have finally penetrated. And he's finally like in a place where he's ready to, you know, accept that he's a bad person and that he needs to do better, <laughs> basically. It almost reminds me a little bit of you know, Ramses in the Bible with Moses, how in order for Ramses to like, you know, change his perspective on the Jewish people and let them go, he had to experience all of these plagues first mm-hmm. before. And I'm not saying that, I, I'm i just talking about the themes of stories in the Bible. I'm not saying whether or not I believe it or don't believe it or whatever. I'm just saying this is something that yeah. exists yeah. in the Bible. <laughs> Um, and you know, he, God sends him all these plagues and then finally he gets to a point where he breaks and is like, okay, I'm going to let these people go free. And I don't remember who it is in this movie that curses him, but someone literally like curses him. Is it Celie mm. who does that? Oh, um, cause I think that the whole sure. burning of his crops and ever, or, or the beetles, which leads them to having to burn the crops, yeah. is a result of the curse. But I don't remember who gives the curse. It's I, either Celie or Suge, but I don't remember which one it is. Yeah, I, I don't remember. But I don't think I fully realized at the time that that was a curse. Yeah, that 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 was my interpretation because, oh no, it's Celie because she says to him, everything that you touch or everything that matters to you will crumble. Or something like that. Yes. And then shortly after she leaves, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so so you you said Mister earlier, which made me think of that was one of the most impactful parts of the movie for me when Suge pointed out to Seely, oh, his name's not Mister. His name is like his name is like Albert entirely. Yeah. And Seely's been married to him for like nine years at this point. Yeah. (laughs) And she thinks his name is Mister. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just cra- crazy to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. But that one line says so much, you know, just mm-hmm. that one little yeah. interaction. I mean, they sort of talk about it a little more. Like, Sugar's like, yeah, these, these, you know, men like him, it's like they don't have respect in other parts of the world. And so they have this, this like deep emotional need to go out and demand it at home and yeah basically set themselves up as little mini gods in their own um domestic sphere using whatever power they can assert and so like this imparting this title on him on himself and making her call him that is his way of exerting this kind of control that he needs and we see in the film that um that part of this is this sort of generational cycle of abuse and toxic masculinity you know it's imparted from his own father and then throughout the film, there's this struggle of, is he going to impart this on Harpo? Harpo seems to have a more kind heart, but is also very swayed by why, wanting to have his father's respect and wanting to um, have a home like his father has, where he's like, you know, 
what it means to be a man is for your woman to mind you. And I can't get my woman to mind me. So that means I'm not a man. You know, Mm -hmm. there's that whole. Yeah, it's like this, this really toxic culture of this is what a man looks like. This is how a woman should defer to a man. And if you have any if if you are not, you know, modeling that exact same thing, then you're not you don't have the respect that you think you're supposed to have in this society. And I feel like that's further represented through that moment when we discover or when Seely tells Harpo to beat his wife. Because he's like, he's like, I can't, I can't control her. I don't know what to do. And Mm Celie's like, well, hit her, you know? And Mm -hmm. then, and then, you know, Sophia comes back and is like, how dare you tell him to do that? You know? And, and Celie responds with like, I'm so sorry I did it because I'm jealous of you and da, 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 da. But that just communicates that this mentality that the men have is so pervasive that even the women start to believe it, you know, of like, this is my role and because it's my role, it's also the role for all other women. And like, so this is what needs to be done sort of thing, as opposed to having actual agency where they can think for themselves, which is part of Celie's journey, you know, because as the as the story goes on, we just meet more and more people or more and more women rather that have agency for their own life. Or even if they, it seems like Suge has the most agency and Sophia doesn't really, but she really asserts it so that she has it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just feel like these these three women together, it's just this beautiful, like, triad of women that are all in different stages, but they all complement each other. And by the end, they're all in such a great place, especially when we <laughs> when we have that dinner scene when all of them are kind of united and and Shug's like, yeah, I'm taking Celie with me. Like, we're mm-hmm. getting out of here. I don't care what you say. And then Sophia's like, we're going to make some changes around here. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be staying. But, you know, <laughs> and I just love how we see this camaraderie between them grow and, and how Celie is the one who's visiting Sophia every week and how that's what got her through and man, it's just like, uh, women are so great. I just yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, so the, oh, the, except for Miss Millie, that, that one lady, the, the white lady who's like, you're my maid now. And it's like, well, oh gosh, yeah. The mayor's suck. wife. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. The theater that I saw the movie in was, it was about 90% full. Like my, um, it was very nearly almost all the showings were almost were basically sold out. Same at the and, theater that I went to. It was very exciting. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And the theater, from from what I could tell, was probably like seventy to eighty percent black. Um, the showing that I was in, and I was sitting next to this this woman, um, kind of an older older woman. She was black, and her listening to her reactions to different things throughout the film was mm-hmm. re- I love I love when people are not being obnoxious but are really genuinely responding to things in the movie like mm-hmm. having that communal experience is so much fun my theater the whole theater was so responsive to mm-hmm. things in the movie there was applause there were people going yes amen you know at mm-hmm. different spots it was amazing I loved it so much um but I remember the first thing getting a really big reaction was Sophia's Hell No song. Hell and it was just like applause. And uh-huh. like, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, I was wondering, actually, because you spoke about this a little bit already, but your 
perspective coming from, you know, being mixed, um, have, coming from um, an African-American family, like about this story and about the themes of kind of um, womanhood, ma uh, male, sort of male, male female roles, um, empowerment, um, you know, figuring out how to navigate times of oppression and distress like i don't know can you speak more to that because i would love to hear more of like what you would think um what you thought about this film kind of specifically from that angle yeah i mean i do not want to claim to be the representative yeah. for all black people in this country because I, I just would never claim to do that but one thing i can say is that in my experience and in my family, I'm not going to say the women run the the household, but like, <laughs> but like the, the women are very strong and very powerful and very vocal. And I found that to be like Sophia and Shug remind me a lot of like my aunts and, and, and things like that. So yeah, I mean, I found that to be resonant with like my experience in terms of like black women are just very strong people. And I think that everyone is where they are now because of where they come from. Like history influences who we are now. And so I watched this movie and I was like, this probably has trickled down and affects, not probably like almost certainly has trickled down through the years and affects the way that, you know, African-American women function now in the home as well as African-American men. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's kind of like the main thing that I can say is that it, it yeah, black women are just very strong and, um, but they're also so fun, you know, like <laughs> they're really fun people and it's so cool to see the ways that they just find joy and laughter in life in the midst of situations that can be very difficult. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's a different culture, but I also... It was, I mean, long live movie theaters. I'm a huge, like, I, I will evangelize movie theaters all day long. I'm like, Amen. go to the theater, like, go to a theater because the more you go, the more other people will go. And when you go see a movie where there's other people there, there's nothing like it. And I I went to a rather large theater and I was like, dang, I've never seen this many black people in the theater. Like, it was so cool. Um, because so many times I go to the theater and I'm sitting there and it's all white people and I'm like, I'm not anti-white people, but also like, you know, it'd be nice to have someone else here. And, um, yeah, my experience was pretty similar, especially the hell no song, but there was a lot of like, come on, you, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and, and it was fun to, to kind of engage in that with that community. Um, and Anyway, yeah, it, it was a great time. I, I had a very fun time. I mean, this movie is really hard to watch in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Um, but at the same time, because of the crowd that I saw it with, it was a fun time in a weird way. Um, but yeah, I do. I do want to talk about th this was other than the God thing. This was the main thing I wanted to talk to you about when I left the theater. I want to talk to you about the performances in this movie. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> because there's so many performances that are so strong. And so, yeah, I just wanted to hear your perspective on, like, 
who were your favorites and why and what were your favorite moments, you know, for their performances and things like that. So start wherever you want and end wherever you want. But I'm just curious. Yeah, great question. (laughs) Um, Well, obviously, um, Fantasia Barino and I don't know the name off the top of my head of the the woman, the girl who plays the younger version of Celie, but uh, Fantasia Barino, by the way, just to close this loop, she did play Celie on Broadway back in 2000 like the late 2000s and I think she was in the the touring production as well. So she didn't she didn't originate the role but I think she took over for it sometime during the run. I wonder um, when when it switched to Cynthia Erivo then. Well, I think there was a revival, wasn't there just recently? Like yeah, it, maybe, the, maybe the show had ended yeah. and then it was revived. Yeah, I'm just mixing up the years, but I think you're right. Okay. Um anyway, yeah, so I thought both of them were of course, you know, just excellent as Celie. One of the performers that I keep seeing being singled out, who I actually did not know ahead of time was not playing Celie. But once I I discovered afterwards who she played, I was like, oh, yes, of course, is uh, Danielle Brooks, who plays plays Sophia. She is incredible. She (laughs) is so magnetic and charismatic and fun to watch. Yeah. Like, um, my brother had seen part of the Steven Spielberg movie and he was not crazy about the, I think it's actually Oprah who plays that role in mm-hmm. the movie. He just thought that the way it was kind of played didn't really work for drawing you into that character. But Danielle Brooks is incredible as Sophia. She is, yeah, you're just f- so fully on her side and so, and she's so, she just, she sparks everything, you know, she's, um, what she means to Celie is so important, the way that she represents this alternative way of being and this alternative mode of navigating relationships. And so later in the film, you know, halfway two thirds of the way through when she has that horrific traumatic in- encounter and she's brutally beaten and she's thrown into prison and she it breaks her for a bit. It's so devastating. She's in prison for years. She's I in think. prison for like, yeah, I think they say like six years yeah. total. Yeah. Um, and so just seeing her, and again, Daniel Brooks does this so well, seeing her sit there with just the light extinguished from her eyes, I don't know how she does it, but she manages to do it. It's such a jarring shift from what had come before. Mm-hmm. And it just gets you so personally, like the 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 devastation of what this has done to her and to her spirit. And so then later on, when Celie is finally able to start standing up for herself and is able to kind of remind her of who she was and the hope that she used to have and bring her back to herself, it's just such an incredibly moving moment. Seeing her laugh for the first time in, you know, it's been years. <laughs> for the first time in years. Such a great moment. Oh, man, it's so revitalizing. It's it's really wonderful. So yeah, Danielle Brooks, she's who, incredible. Who also played Sophia in the Broadway show. Oh, did most, she? Most recently, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, amazing. Yeah, that's that's a great casting choice. You, I feel like with her, you just, it feels like, the character is a part of her you know Mm -hmm. it it, obviously they're separate people but it does feel like yeah just like this character is so near and dear to her heart that she gives her everything that she's got you know Mm -hmm. there's just a sense of real love and care for the character there yeah and also shout out to Coleman Domingo who plays Albert Mr. <laughs> However, we want to call him. He's having he, quite a year. He's having quite a year. Yeah. Because yeah. it's this and Rustin. Is he in something else this year? Not quite sure. 
Um, I, those are the two that I know of. Yeah, those are definitely the two that he's getting kind of awards buzz for. But yeah, he does such a good job of this playing this utterly repulsive character. Who... Oh, he was in a Transformers movie this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, apparently he played get the that voice check. of apparently he him. played the voice of Unicron. Whoever oh, Unicron is, great. Is that well, a unicorn? <laughs> is that a unicorn transformer? Uh, I would love for there to be a unicorn transformer. <laughs> anyway, he was in a Transformers film. Okay, well, good for him. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he does such a great job of playing this really horrific, repulsive character. But then also, I think he does a very good job in the later scenes where he finally begins to realize the magnitude of what he's done. And he goes through this this journey of redemption and trying to, um, as Celie says, do right by, <laughs> by her, you know, kind of make good on all of the pain and the anguish that he's caused her over the years. And I think Coleman Domingo manages that transition really well. You know, it doesn't feel jarring. It feels all of one person. That moment, speaking of Fantasia's performance, that performance that she gives when he comes into the shop for the first oh, time. yes. And mm -hmm. her just like... The way she like sort of immediately speaking, shuts down. She's like speaking the minimal amount that she has mm -hmm. to because she's like, I have no idea why you're here. I don't know how you'll react to anything that I say. I don't know how you feel about the fact that I own a store. Like mm -hmm. it's... She barely says anything, but... It's not even her face. It's her body language. Like everything about it. That scene was really impactful for me in terms of her performance. I just thought it was so great. And just that contrast of seeing that that Mr. has softened and he's trying to show some sort of affection. But he also seems oddly emotionally aware that she's uncomfortable with him. And so he's trying to be cautious. Um, yeah, the dynamic of that scene was was so good <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah they, and I think they work off each other so well I think if I remember correctly I I could be wrong with the timing but I think if I remember correctly that's the scene that led up to her singing the most famous best song in the musical which is I'm here yeah um, I think I think you're right yeah um also I want to say that I I don't think this is my favorite part in the movie because there were a lot of parts that I really liked, but that first, I mean, I, I was so overwhelmed with joy because of the empowerment that came with this, but that very first shot, I don't remember if it's Seely, I think it's Seely, but she's wearing pants Oh, and then yes. all of the other women are wearing pants. Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, queen, wear those <laughs> pants. Like, yes. I, I can't even express how happy that made me to see women in a position where it's like, dress however the fuck you want. If you want to wear pants, do it. Like, who cares? Fuck the patriarchy. Like, you wear those pants and you look great wearing them. And there were all of these women wearing them. And it was during this beautiful, like, musical dance number um but yeah so so I want to talk a little bit about my read of the performances and then also mm. I particularly want to get your opinion on like the choreography and the dance numbers because yeah, I know please. that's your jam mm -hmm. um but so yeah I mean if if it's not very clear I very much so liked Fantasia's performance um it was very powerful um she just led the movie really, really well and just showing 
her progression as a person and as a character. I thought she did a great job. And I think also there are particular moments in this movie, especially the end where it could come across as very cheesy, but it doesn't because of her performance. Um, And I think that that's really great. I was incredibly shocked by Taraji's performance in this movie. Mm. I, I was blown away. I think this is the best performance I've ever seen her give. I did not know she could sing. I'm like, girl, if you I didn't could know sing, she could sing either. Yeah. I'm like, why didn't you sing on empire? Like literally your whole family was a musical empire. Like what? But I, I had no idea that she could sing. I know that this is maybe a controversial thing to say, but she gave my favorite performance in this movie. I just mm. thought she was absolutely magnetic and having this person who shows real and genuine love for Celie who lacks it in pretty much every other aspect of her life because her sister is no longer there. And, and just seeing how Suge's personality just brings out this side of Celie because she's so just inviting. I heard her, she's just, I just, I want to be her friend and I want to be with her all the time. And obviously, you know, Celie, is she like loves her whereas I'm just kind of like she's cool I want to be her friend but I just thought that the performance was really really great by Taraji I thought that she just embodied the character in ways that I was not expecting at all um and she really held her own because we've got some real famous Broadway performing singers here (laughs) and she held her own so yeah um Danielle Brooks obviously phenomenal she she brings the humor she brings the strength she brings she just brings so much brute force in the most positive way to the women in this story um because Celie's kind of like a gentle empowerment and then Suge mm-hmm. is like a joyful empowerment and then Sophia's just like power she's ah she's just so strong um but also, I wanted to say, I absolutely love Corey Hawkins. He is an actor where every single time I see him in a movie, I'm like, why aren't you in more things? He has never given a performance that I don't like. He is phenomenal in Straight Outta Compton. He's incredible in In the Heights. He's so good in this movie. I also think he's in Black Klansman, I think. Um but he he is just such I, I just I really like him as an actor and I feel like he was very well cast as this character who's kind of walking this line between being kind of a kind gentle man but feeling this pressure to be a traditional like macho sort of guy and, and trying to figure out who am I which one am I I feel like I need to be this one but I can't and like Mm-hmm. You know, and then you see towards the end, he has his own version of empowerment that's kind of just like coming into his own and recognizing that who he is is fine. And also seeing how his father is kind of not the person that he thought he was because he's losing himself and just like, you know, falling apart, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think this movie is very, very well cast. All of the performances are great. Um it doesn't feel like anyone is in a role that feels out of place for them. I feel like yeah. everyone just fits really well. So shout out to the casting director. I should look up mm-hmm. who that is, honestly. Yeah. One other shout out too, because she, you know, she has a relatively small portion of the film in which to make an impact, but the impact she makes, I think is so big is Halle Bailey as the young Nettie, mm-hmm. because she is just so, 
she glows every time she's on screen. There's just something about her that just radiates warmth and love. And it's so crucial to understanding the relationship between her and Celie and how Mm -hmm. they are each other's world and they are each other's source of protection and learning and understanding how, you know, what it means to love and to care for another person, what it means to feel safe and wanted and accepted. And so when she is sent away, that loss is devastating and you feel that lack. It creates this vacuum in the film. And so every time you see Celie as an adult longing for her sister, you know, we as an audience are also <laughs> longing for her to come back. And I think um, I think it's Sierra who plays the older version of Nettie. And she she does a wonderful job of filling that vacuum as she's coming back in at the end of the film and kind of being, yes, this is who that character evolved into. You know, she's still got that glow. She's still got that warmth. She's a little bit older, a little bit wiser. She's had more experience, but she is you know, the same person and is so ready to come back into to Celie's life and provide this thing that she's been wanting all these years. That also reminds me of the aspect of the story that I don't know specifically how this works and why he was doing this, but the fact that Mr. took Celie's children and just like... No, it wasn't Mr. So they're who they think is their father they later learn that it's actually their stepfather he because he's the one who you know raped Celie and was the father of her children after the children are born he took them both away and he wouldn't tell them where what he did with them he just said that he gave them to god and through happy accident Nettie ends up in a position where she can actually be with the children and care for them because she's working for this missionary family who adopted them Um, but yeah it was the Alfonso is the name of their their stepfather right um yes right but that just reminded me of I don't know that the ending was just so powerful because her seeing her sister was obviously huge but then being introduced to her whole family of like Mm. here are your children here are your grandchildren yeah (laughs) it's just overwhelming Uh uh-huh and it just was a very a very powerful moment that I, you know, it's 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 definitely a happy ending that mm-hmm. might not happen in real life. Yeah. But I wanted I, it so badly for her, and I kept having this thought toward the end. You know, after um, Suge comes and takes Celie away, that in a way, this is this movie is kind of a twisted Cinderella <laughs> story. You know, of this character who's been abused and mistreated, and um you know, isolated and and forced to work um, for years. But then finally, having this opportunity for all of the the goodness that she has in her, and all of the the ways that she's tried to enrich the lives of the people around her to be rewarded in this, you know, just incredibly gorgeous and fulfilling way that, you know, is probably not how life works out most times, but it's definitely how we want life to work out. And it's definitely reflects something of, you know, our, our human need and desire to see justice to be done and to see the people who are good to be rewarded and <laughs> those who are bad to be punished. Um, yeah, I, the ending worked really, really well for me. To go on a very brief tangent, I, I'm someone who... In movies in particular, I I really like for movies to have kind of 
realistic endings that that's just a general statement it's not true across the board but I I'm not necessarily always into endings where it's like okay happy ending cool I'm like well that's not realistic but for some reason in musical theater I'm like give me all the (laughs) happy endings like I want a happy ending every (laughs) single time and I don't know what it is but musical theater there's a pass I'm like every single time it deserves a happy ending and I have no qualms with it whatsoever. (laughs) And I feel like this was just another, another representation of that for me. But can I say one thing about, and this is not really a, it's a, I don't want to say criticism. It's more a thing that I felt like I struggled with in the film. It's relatively small, but I think part of it might be just the struggles of this is a novel, with a dense novel that's juggling a lot of different storylines and we're adapting it to a musical where we have to take a lot of things out. But I'm wondering if you felt the same. I felt like the relationship between Harpo and Squeak, Mary Agnes, and then also Sophia as well. But there are so many time jumps in this story And each time there's a time jump, the relationship between the three of them has kind of changed. And I felt it was kind of hard to hold on to what exactly is going on with them at any given moment. And specifically, I really felt like the character of Squeak suffered from that because I didn't really... She's kind of positioned toward the end as kind of one of the main four, but we really don't learn too much about her or her story. She's kind of in love with Harpo, you know, after Sophia has left him, so much so that she gets really jealous and starts a fight with Sophia. But then at the table scene, she's kind of standing up to him and being like, yeah, I want to leave too. But I, I felt like we didn't really get a sense of what is that relationship between them? Why does she want to leave him so stridently when the last thing that we saw between them was her being kind of head over heels for Harpo? Yeah, like, it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's just that I felt there's a lot missing there that I couldn't really get a sense of who her character is, what her arc is, what it is that she needs in order to be empowered. So I was wondering if you felt the same or if you have any more thoughts on that character, that dynamic. Yeah, I can't necessarily speak to that because I don't understand it either. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because there was a particular moment when we're first introduced to Squeak that my thought was, oh, okay. So Harpo and Sophia are divorced now mm-hmm. and they've both found new people. Cool. Awesome. But then I was like, wait, so are him and Sophia still married, but they're just seeing other people on the side and Squeak is kind of like who, you know, when Sophia comes, comes into the, to the jazz club or bar or whatever you call it, very clearly Squeak feels kind of threatened that she's there and that they're dancing together. And I'm like, okay, so so like what is happening and then we have the jump forwards and we know that and then like they have kids and so it's like did squeak step in and help raise the kids like I don't I don't know I I was very confused by it as well I also felt like the ending with squeak standing up at the table being like I'm gonna go too I'm like okay I don't really care because I don't know who you are (laughs) like like it doesn't really impact me much because yeah like I haven't really you haven't been established well enough that I really care about what happens to you I also don't really understand who you are um but yeah that that was something that I also struggled with but forgot that I struggled with it until you brought it up just now so (laughs) yeah yeah I mean my 
after when we were talking about the movie afterwards, my brother kind of pointed out and, you know, again, I think this is largely a product of a dense novel being adapted into a musical and a lot of things needing to be taken out or simplified. But it is a bit disjointed. There's some drastic time jumps and the movie kind of expects you to catch up very quickly with where the characters are. But sometimes where the characters are is very very different from where it was before and so you have to kind of very quickly mentally fill in some gaps or just kind of accept these changes without the movie explaining them to you so it can get a little jarring at places it's not i didn't find it too distracting from the overall experience but i felt like the harpo squeak um dynamic was kind of the one where i felt most the the damage done by whatever parts of their storyline were taken out yeah, like it was definitely a loose end, I think, that got a little bit lost and, and yeah. confuzzled throughout the, <laughs> confuzzled. the process. Um, but yeah, so I want to hear your thoughts on the like the choreography and the musical aspect of it, because that's something that, w- given what I know about you, that's something that you always really think about regarding whether or not a musical is actually good or not. Um, you just focus on those things. Whereas I don't really, I'm like, oh, cool. They danced and they were all in time and synchronized. Love it. (laughs) But I just remember you really, really loving Steven Spielberg's West Side Story because you Mm -hmm. were like, oh my gosh, the choreography and the way that it shot with the camera movements and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, cool. The dance sounds good to me. Um, so do you have any particular opinions on it in this movie? Yeah. I mean, I don't really have too many specific thoughts on it because I, I don't think this movie is really doing something especially sort of unique and never been done before in musical theater. But I don't say that in any way as a criticism because I think this, I I really love the way that this movie is directed. I think the choreography is very good. And I think the way the choreography is filmed is very, very good. It's it's very visible. The the cuts are um, in time with the music when they need to be made, but you can also see what's going on. Um, I think the way that it's staged with often you'll have a, a character who's singing and walking through um, a bunch of sort of background dancers performing some sort of choreography is very, you know, you can see the influence of the stage, but I think it's mm-hmm. um, the the transference that's done to put it on film works very mm-hmm. well in terms of the the framing and the scope of it. Um, there are some really cool sort of fantastical moments where, like, there's that one song. Um, it's toward the beginning. I don't remember which song it is, but um, I think it's when Celie is singing about her hope that she'll see her children again, and she suddenly sees this vision of a chain gang and then she's walking through it Mm. as she's singing and then she walks over to a waterfall and there are women Mm. washing in the waterfall and it's like these two images that I don't fully understand the connection with the song that she's singing but I think they're just really striking images and I guess it sort of gives a general feel of you know the the drudgery and the the feeling of limitedness of her day-to-day life being connected to these other people in this really abstract but interesting way and I thought the choreography for all of those was really well done um the Shug's um song at the juke the first time that she performs I kept thinking that moment when Mm -hmm. I I think it's Seely who's like yeah she wants to make an entrance (laughs) yeah and then you see the rowboat coming in arriving on a boat yep (laughs) yeah her whole entrance by the way Mm mm-hmm 
yeah, that whole entrance is amazing. Her costume's amazing. The guy's like snapping in the background is so perfect. And then the song itself that she sings and how they're in this juke that has the, you know, the wood slats and the light poking through. It kept making me think of the airplane song from All That Jazz, just in the way that mm. the lighting is done. And actually, this was a thought that I had throughout oh, the film. Is that the... Yeah. Because there was one moment in this movie where, and maybe we're talking about the same thing. There's mm. one moment in this movie where I was like, that looks like the sex dance from All That yes, Jazz. Yes, that's exactly that what, what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I was like, that. Yeah. this is very reminiscent of that. <laughs> I'm so glad we had the same thought. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that I had throughout this whole film, and not just during the musical numbers, actually during a lot of the dialogue scenes as well, is just... This movie's so well lit. I really love what they did with the lighting and the use of shadows. And I think, I mean, mm -hmm. it's so well staged in the the way that shadows, especially of the men, are used, you know, to kind of show Seely like like the shadows looming over her or kind of penning her in in certain ways, like using lighting to enhance the the feeling of the characters. It's it's very you can tell that a lot of thought was put into it, and I think it's really, really effective. Yeah. To yes, I like that you mentioned the lighting because uh, it was was very good in this movie. Um, so for me, there's really only one final thing that I want to touch on, which is um, I really liked this addition of, you know, we we are descendant of kings and queens from mm. Africa and just this sense of this role that we have here does not like lessen us as a people because actually this is who we are and who we come from. And I just feel like that is a very powerful message. And the fact that in addition to that, we have, you know, Celie's sister who we learn once she actually gets hold of the letters, you know, she's moved to Africa and, and she kind of chronicles her experience of, oh my gosh, look at these amazing people that I've met here like there's kings and queens and then she starts talking about how people have come in and started mm -hmm. destroying where they live and they're yeah, having to the hide and, British colonialism and yeah we have to like find shelter and we don't know if we can stay here and we think we have to come back in order to keep our family and your children safe and all these things I just thought that that was a very uh I'm glad that that is an aspect of the story that is included because it's very minor. Like it's not referenced very often, but the times that it is mentioned, it just kind of reminds you to keep thinking about it throughout mm -hmm. the whole story, you know? And so it's always kind of in the back of your mind, or at least it was in the back of my mind. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I liked that addition a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You get the sense that Nettie is having her, she, an entire whole novel could be written about her own experiences um you know as since she's been separated from Celie the entire time yeah 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 I there's so many characters here that I'm like I want a whole story about yeah. them like <laughs> Sophia definitely like a yeah. whole thing about Suge a whole thing about Sophia mm -hmm. I'd love to see one about Harpo as well like mm. there's just so much going on here honestly I'd see one about Mr. too because clearly he's got some daddy issues with his father like, yeah yeah. Um, there's, but that's the sign of a good story, right? When every single character is someone that is an entire person, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, that this, that each of these people has their own world that they live in. Um, it's just so, so well done and, yeah. and so powerful. And it makes me want to read the book, honestly. Like, yeah, I, was just I should read it. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
Also, by the way, just speaking of Mister's father, uh, his father's played by Louis Gossett Jr. And mm-hmm. I, he, he's had a long career. I've seen him in things like there isn't like one specific thing that I could point to in the moment to think of like, oh, I know him from this. But he got a huge applause break from my audience the first time he, he showed really? up on Steen, which is amazing. Oh, that's cool. Like much respect because he's had a really, really long career. Oh, um, he's been working since like the 60s, I think. Well, that's interesting because I recognized his face, but I couldn't connect. Yeah. Oh, he was in Roots. That's probably what I know him oh, from. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Tim said he was, or sorry, my brother said he was in the original. You cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> cut that out. Um, my brother said he was in the original um, Raisin in the Sun. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That. I know that these are very different scenarios, but it made me think of um, I was living in Spain at the time that Dune came out. Mm-hmm. And the second that Javier Bardem like took his hood down, everyone yeah. was like, oh, my God, it was Javier Bardem <laughs> because he's Spanish. And apparently the Spanish people, at least in the theater that I was in, didn't know that he was in this movie. Oh, really? And, yeah. It's like this American movie where everyone's speaking English and then Javier Bardem shows oh, up and everyone's awesome. like, ah! <laughs> loses their minds. That's amazing. <laughs> it was so fun. I was just laughing. So I'm like, did you guys not know he was in this? Like, that's crazy. Um, Aww, hometown hero. Yeah, honestly, he, I mean, the Spanish people love their movie stars. Like, it's Antonio Banderas, Penelope Cruz. Yeah, I was going to go, I was going to say, I wonder what a screening of Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny would have been like. You get surprised Antonio Banderas two thirds of the way through. I mean, I literally lived in Malaga, which is where Antonio Banderas grew up. And everyone says, like, if you go with any Spaniard or whoever down this one street, they're like, yep. That's where Antonio Banderas lives, <laughs> like every single time. They Wait, point still out. lives? Well, so he, he has a house there. He has multiple houses in Spain, I think. Okay, but th- like he's sense. from Malaga, and so he has a specific like home there okay. that's in the very downtown area. So, um, and while I was there, he was doing, um, there's a very small theater in Malaga. And so he was doing a stage show for a few weeks. And so he was like living up there while performing his shows at night. And I was like, oh my God, Antonio Banderas here. I'm like, yeah, cool. Like, awesome. (laughs) Um, but anyway, anything else about this movie that you want (laughs) to talk about? I feel like, um, I've touched on most of the things. Unless you remind me of something that I forgot. One thing that I wanted to just talk about um was just just the character of Celie herself yeah because i really loved Celie's character and connected with her especially as the like um you know i'm always going to connect with the character who's kind of on the more shy retiring side and can't stand up for herself and it's not to draw any connection between me and Celie because i you know, she's a thousand times more kind and forgiving than I would be given her circumstances. But I really loved that she stays, I don't even want to say stays true because it's not like she has much choice to change, but that the movie kind of gives a lot of respect for who she is and her, the, her personality, you know, she is not Sophia. Sophia encourages her to stand up for herself. Shogun encourages her to stand up for herself. And she eventually does in the way that she can, which is awesome and empowering. But it's also like she is not those characters. She's not going to do it in the same way that they can. And she does need a lot more encouragement and support to be able to do that than they would in that situation, I think. And so just centering the film around this character who has these qualities that are um 
you know, they're they're quieter, they're less sort of flashy and exciting, um, but they're no less important. And so having her as that kind of counterpoint to those those other two and having this, like you said, the the three of them, they're all different, but they all bring something really important to the table. And so, yeah, I just really loved the character of Celie and loved the the role that she plays in the life of everyone. You know, she's she's not flashy, exciting, talkative, but she is very loving. She's very gentle. She's a sort of caring, stabilizing presence that is really valuable. And by the end of the film, the fact that she's able to build herself this really tight-knit, loving community of found family, essentially, in the absence of her sister Nettie is, I think, just incredibly gorgeous. And yeah, I found it very, very powerful. So yeah, just much respect to the character of Celie as I assume written in the original novel, but then also as performed in this movie. Yeah, just to just to piggyback off of that, you made me think about um, just kind of how you were talking about these three different women and how, you know, they all they all kind of come to their empowerment in different ways. And I think that we see in that last scene that the moments when Celie is the strongest is when she has these people around her that she has allowed into her life, which is very difficult and vulnerable for her. Like that's her own struggle to let people in, to trust people again, to love people again, to let people love her, you know, and that's her own type of strength. And I think that, yeah, like I said, that's very representative in the end when she is most powerful is when she has all of these people that she has fought so hard to build these relationships with when she has all of them together with her, which I think is an incredible gift to have, you know, like it's very incredible to be very powerful as an independent person, but it's also extremely incredible to be very powerful with a community that you've built, you know? Um, And with all that Celie's been through, the fact that she's able to bring all these people together is just really, it's really great. Um, But yeah, I also wanted to say real quick, kind of a little bit of a switch in tone. I thought John Batiste was very random in this movie. <laughs> I, I was like, I I thought he looked familiar, but I couldn't place his face in the moment. Yeah, his acting was really bad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we needed him to like play the piano and stuff like that. It's not his yeah. acting wasn't really bad, but it was yeah, just has like, he done much acting or is he mainly a musician? Because I was like, I know his face, but I can't think what I what I know him from. Aside from being in music videos. Okay. He doesn't really have much acting experience from okay. what I know, but he also just kind of disappears from the movie. At I a know. Certain point. I was like, I'm just like, well, <laughs> he's just like here to establish that Suge has gotten married, and then after yeah. that, it's like, all right, yeah, we, like he he did his time. We don't need him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just felt strange to me because everyone else has such such powerful performances. Then he just is kind of there to be like, hey, hey. <laughs> I'm gonna play the piano for five minutes and then he's gone I'm like okay um but yeah do you have any thoughts on um sorry I'm just remembering things do you yeah. have any thoughts on Celie and Suge's relationship because from what I've heard mm-hmm. the book is pretty unsubtly referencing like them having a romantic relationship but then in Steven Spielberg's adaptation it is art it's debatable whether or not it's platonic or romantic Mm -hmm. and then in the broadway show i don't remember what the approach is 
But in this movie, it's very clearly being like, yeah, these these women are in love. <laughs> and in this society, they probably would or like if they were alive now, they would mm-hmm. they would be together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a bit like it's from the original novel. So, you know, I, I don't fault them for keeping it in, certainly. And I think it's an important part, especially of Celia's character, as she's kind of being awakened to who she is apart from Mr. And um, kind of, yeah, establishing her own identity. I did find it a little bit distracting just because it's sort of, they keep, they have sort of the barest amount to establish that she and Shug do have a sexual relationship, but then they don't go into it any more than that. They don't really, it's kind of just one moment of them waking up in bed together. And then we never see them in any sort of romantic situation after that. It's just pure, as depicted, it's <laughs> Tatum's making faces. Like I felt like <laughs> it's sort of finish. Like, yeah. This is me being Kanye. Uh, it's okay. I'll let you finish. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you finish. I felt it confused me in terms of Suge's character because I'm mm. like, okay, I understand how who Celie's character is. I feel like I'm not really getting how that plays into Suge and her desires, who she is, what she wants, and the relationship that they have going forward. So I, you know, I, obviously it's an essential part of Celie's character, which is why they needed to keep it in. I feel like they should have either done a little bit more with it or made it more ambiguous. Um, Like as, as the amount that they did with it, I felt like just raised more questions for me than it really revealed. Um, But yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I came out and I had to, like, Google the novel and see, like, look up the plot. And we like, was that in the novel? Oh, yeah. It's very explicit. You know, it's very clearly a part of the novel. So they, they didn't want to take it out altogether. It just, as it was actually depicted in the movie, you know, going in for me with no prior context, it just kind of confused me a little bit at the moment. But, yeah, what did you think of it, of the way that they, they depicted it? Yeah, I I liked it. I feel like... It's interesting that you say that, you know, we we see them lying in bed together and then after that we don't really see much romantic interaction because I feel like they are very romantic from beginning mm. to end. They might not be physically romantic because they can't necessarily do that in very out in the open ways, but I feel like the ways that they communicate, the ways that they look at each other, they are extremely mm. romantic. I feel like from the first time they interact up until the very last time they interact, it just feels like there is, I don't know. I I felt a lot of chemistry between the two of them in a way that didn't need to be explicitly stated. It was just very obviously something that was there. At least for me, it felt very Mm. obviously like something that was there. And so I, I connected with it a lot and I didn't, I saw I saw the reasoning behind it for both Seely and Shug. I feel like for Shug, I, like I don't know. I I I can't I can't necessarily explain it aside from the fact that I feel like they had a lot of chemistry. I feel mm-hmm. like if you like somebody and you have chemistry with them, there doesn't necessarily have to be like these are the reasons why why I'm choosing to be with you or whatever. It's just like you, you like them and you feel a connection even if you can't put words to it. So yeah, that's fair. I think part of what threw me off. And I, again, I think this is part of the product of adapting a lengthy novel to a musical theater piece where you need to have these sort of 
quick time needs to be compressed, but also you need to have these lengthy time jumps, is that they they have this night together. Um, and the next day, um, Suge helps Celie to uncover the letters from her sister Nettie that Mr. has been hiding from her. But then almost immediately, Suge needs to leave. And as she leaves, she promises that she's going to return. But then there's a time jump of several years. And from what it seems like, it seems like she's not returned since then. And so that's the thing that kind of threw me off of like, how... I'm not doubting the genuineness of, of Suge's feelings, but kind of what is Suge's sort of feeling about where things stood between them when they left, if she hasn't come back in that time? I think that's part of what what threw me off. I guess I'd have to watch the movie again, because I don't remember if they established that she had never come back in between those two scenes that we see. Because when she leaves that first time, she does say, like, I'll be back in a month. And yeah, I guess that's true. They don't make it explicit well, that she yeah. had never come back. That was the sense that I got, but I could have been wrong. Yeah, because my sense was like, yeah, we've jumped forward in time, but it's not like they haven't talked in 20 mm. years. You know, okay. like Celia isn't approaching her and being like, where have you been? Why haven't I heard mm. from you? It's just like, oh, hey, good to see you. Like you're around, <laughs> you know, because okay. um, I feel like Celia, especially given her personality, and her relationship was shook. If she'd been gone for a long time, she would have gone up to her and nervously been like, hey, you know, why why haven't I heard from you? Like, I thought that da-da-da-da, but that's not, I didn't, mm. they didn't have any sort of interaction like that. So I didn't get a sense that they hadn't been in contact for a long period of time. Okay. But that okay. that's just my, that's just my takeaway. But Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think I, there were a lot of dots that I personally connected because I felt the extreme chemistry between the mm. two of them. It just really felt, I don't know. It, it just felt really, I, I, it just felt very real yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So I, I shipped them. I was like, I ship you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know because just the, the way that Celia interacts with Suge is very obviously different from how she interacts with like Sophia, for example, or mm. someone like that. Um, yeah, but. yeah. I mean, you have the that scene where Suge is in the bathtub and Celia, as she's like looking at her, is kind of having this moment of awakening of like, oh, I'm starting to understand all of these things that I've never been able to feel before, you know, things that the poets write that I've never understood before this moment, you know. It's so clear that, and even from the first moment when she sees Shug's photo, like she is so taken by that photo and it's not because she sees her as the other woman. Like there's, you know, there's a clear attraction and desire at certainly on Celie's end um, mm-hmm. from the very first moment. Yeah. And also that connection with Celie of recognizing when you're not here, that means Mr's going to be a lot worse. It's yeah. Like, which was such a hard moment. So and too, awful. like... And I think so important because that was one of the first things as I was, you know, being introduced to Shog's character and trying to figure out kind of who is this woman, you know, what are the ways in which she acts? The fact that she's perfectly fine being in this house with, you know, like sleeping with this man who is married when his wife is also in the house says something about her. But the fact that she does this not knowing who that Mr. Beats Seely and like you know not really understanding fully who Mr. is and once she knows that she's so fully on Seely's side 
you know, it, it tells you so much about who Suge is as a character and, um, yeah, where, when the chips are down, kind of where her, her values and her, um, her loyalties are ultimately going to rest. Totally. Yeah. Women unite. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's just like some beautiful unspoken alliance that just exists between Mm -hmm. women that I am obsessed with. I think it's amazing. Um, there's just like this understanding between Mm -hmm. us all of like, yep, like no questions asked. I totally understand. I'm on your side. Like, you know, it's just, I I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that this movie, like for a lot of it, it's sort of like all the men are monsters. There's a long stretch of the movie where you don't see a man that isn't a monster, (laughs) but the movie ultimately doesn't come down on that side. You know, there are ultimately, there are good men in this movie and there are men who are able to move out of their monstrousness towards something better but it is such a movie it is a movie where those you know the the bonds between women and the you know the special support that is provided from one woman to another is such a focal point of the film and it is it's really beautiful i Mm -hmm. ah, it made my heart so full every time that those the lead um characters are singing together or supporting each other in one way or another it just made me so happy yeah i i already had a sense after listening to the broadway show musical i was like the next time this comes around i'm gonna see it and after watching this movie, I'm like, the next time this comes around, I'm <laughs> I know. Well, I still remember when the show, the like 2000s, late 2000s version of the show, it was on when I was in high school and I had an opportunity to go see it like with some people from high school. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm OK. And now I'm like, no, I should have gone. There yeah. are multiple shows, Broadway shows that I could have gone in high school and seen. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't really want to like make that three-hour trip or whatever it was and now I'm like no (laughs) I remember when I was in college I had the opportunity because I wasn't that far away I was like oh I could go to New York City and and see Dear Evan Hansen with like the original cast oh my gosh but I didn't go because I was like Mm -hmm. oh you know I don't want to spend the 150 dollars I'm like Tatum you idiot. Like, what I you, know. What I could have seen about? In the Heights with Lin-Manuel Miranda <gasps> and I didn't. Did I tell you this? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. Wow. I'm so mad at myself. Hot take. I think In the Heights is better than Hamilton, but it's my own mm. personal opinion. Uh, and I'm talking about the Broadway show, not not the movie In the Heights. Yeah. Although I do think the movie In the Heights is incredibly underrated. Also mm. has Corey Hawkins in it. If you have not seen <laughs> yeah. In the Heights, highly recommend. Yes. Also, if you've not listened to the Broadway soundtrack for In the Heights, Highly recommend. <laughs> also, if you've not listened to the Broadway soundtrack for Hamilton, highly recommend. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about here? You feel good? No. I yeah. My goodness, that we talked about so much. I mean, there's just there's so much to this movie. There's definitely more things that I'm sure we're forgetting. But those Go are all. Go see kind this of movie. Big... It's it should mm-hmm. still be in theaters when this episode comes out. So please go see this movie if you haven't seen it already. I guess Um, one last question then before we wrap up, unless you have something else is just what do we think about this movie's Oscar chances? What would you nominate it for personally? Obviously production design is, um, Oh no, sorry. Production design is the one you were talking about for, um, poor things, poor things. Um, but yeah, what would you nominate it for if you had your ways and what do you think it actually will be nominated for? If anything, (sighs) I feel like I can't speak to this yet. Because I, I, there's just, 
other things I haven't seen yet and I want to I want to have all the information first before <laughs> before I say anything mm-hmm. but there's a lot of potential here for lots of people and things to be nominated for lots of things and I think given the movies that I have seen I would not be upset if this movie got a lot of nominations because it deserves a lot of them but mm-hmm. yeah I also don't know if we're going to do an episode where we talk more about this, so I don't want to like necessarily repeat things that I'll say in the future. But yeah, I I will just say I do think this is going to be nominated for lots of things, and I think that it will deserve all of the things that it will be nominated for. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some like, I think there there's some awards, um, sort of nominations recently that were released where it it didn't make it onto the list and people were taking that as a bad sign for Oscars. I hope that's not mm. the case because I I really don't want this movie to be lost in the shuffle. I really think it deserves some attention. Um, for me, it's probably the acting is the thing that, you know, on my list would, would be the highest and I think is most likely. I would love to see at least one of the many excellent character cast, cast members get in for actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress. But I Agreed. guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, just to close out, I did do some little information actually while we started this episode and Geneva Ooh. was talking about what she'd been watching. <laughs> nice. So just real quick. So this movie has a 70 on Metacritic mm-hmm. and it is 86% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And then I pulled one review from Screen Rant. Uh, it didn't appear to have an author. Uh, but it says the color purple is a resounding success with respect to quality and entertainment from its messaging about sisterhood and self-love to its stunning filmmaking achievements. It's a film that's easily enjoyed on the big screen while the entire cast brings their a game, Barino, Henson and Brooks steal the show with Oscar worthy performances. So I just randomly pulled that one while you were talking about what you were watching so (laughs) there you go (laughs) you're welcome um but yeah so i guess that's gonna close us out for this week um geneva and i are still figuring out what we'll be talking about next week maybe we'll talk about another recent release or maybe we'll go back to uh a, a specific choice from geneva or i um mm-hmm. but that we do is... have a few movies lined up that we do want to talk about yeah um, so hopefully soon so that is yeah. tbd but i personally would like to talk about another recent release if we if we can do that but mm-hmm. it just depends. yeah this has been really fun yeah okay guys well thanks for sticking around for this different type of episode it was a lot of fun uh and godspeed to all of us as we head towards award season <laughs> It's th- I'm so Indeed. excited. 2023 has been a great year for movies it's been in my an opinion. Amazing year for it's movies. It's been a really yeah. good year. I'm really excited. And there's my most highly anticipated movie is still has yet to come out and I'm yeah. like ah, I'm I saw like on my letterbox I saw someone had watched it and mm. for some reason I thought it was you and then Mm-mm. I realized it wasn't you. I was about yeah. to text you like, "Oh, you did the 40-mile drive that you were planning to do to no, go and see this movie?" But... Cuz they only played it for like 2 days and it went away and I was like, "Drat." So oh now I have gosh. to wait until January 5th, which is oh. like a week from now. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Too long. Too Too long. long. (laughs) I've been starving to death. (laughs) Because I haven't been able to see all of us strangers. (laughs) You 
<laughs> you can't do that impression. It just it kills me every time. It's such a bad impression. I love how much it makes you crack it's up. It's so good. It's not bad. It's good. That's Thank why you. I laugh because I love it so much. It's like so unexpectedly accurate. <laughs> It's, it's because that line has been living, that line reading has been living rent free in my head for. Oh my gosh. I mean, me years. too, but I can't do it like that. Okay. Anyway, let's anyway. go ahead and close out. Um, right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We yeah. will be back with some movie next week. So. TBD. Yeah. Keep your eyes peeled. Yeah. And your ears open and go see <laughs> this movie and listen to some Broadway soundtracks because it's a great way to spend your time. So. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.